You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open up the eyes of our understanding as we give attention to your word, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are there, and thank you that you are not silent, but you have spoken across the centuries in your word that, Lord, lives forever. We understand what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, would you please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, I'm going to begin by reading the first verse, and we'll give a little bit of background to the letter as we make our way. This is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, the one who he had mentored and raised in the faith, a man named Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy is a unique letter from the Apostle Paul. It's unique in one sense because he wrote it to an individual, Timothy. Now, I don't have any doubt that Timothy would have this letter read in the church or church is that he oversaw in the area of Ephesus. I don't have any doubt about that. But there are other letters written to individuals, such as uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, the letter to Titus, the letter to Philemon. No, it's not just the fact that it's written to an individual that makes it unique. Paul wrote this letter from prison. That's very clear later on as we get into the letter that he wrote it from prison. And that's not particularly what makes it unique. Several of Paul's letters were written from prison. What makes 2 Timothy unique is that Paul wrote this knowing that his death was very close. The year was about 66 AD. There was a man who was both crazy and corrupt, reigning as the emperor of Rome. His name was Caesar Nero. And Nero was a crazy man, and as I said, a very corrupt man. And as part of Nero's persecutions of the Christians, he imprisoned the Apostle Paul and he executed the Apostle Paul by beheading in the year 66. Now, when we last left Paul with the close of the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul had been imprisoned. That's the imprisonment described at the end of the book of Acts. But then he was set free from that and he enjoyed anywhere from three to five years of freedom. In those three to five years, he wrote the letter of 1 Timothy. He wrote a few other letters. But now he's been arrested again. Now he's in the Roman, traditionally, what's known as the Mamertine prison in Rome, which is really just a hole in the ground. And he writes this letter knowing that his death is imminent. Let me tell you, there's nothing to clarify your thinking than the knowledge that your death is very close. When we think about it, sometimes it's a great tragedy with the thought that somebody knows that they're going to die. And there's no doubt that there is a tragic aspect in that. But friends, can you realize as well that there's a gift in knowing that you're about to die? And the gift in knowing is that you can prepare yourself for it. And here in Second Timothy, we see Paul as a man dealing with the things that are absolutely most important. He's not messing around with trivialities. I mean, I just look at this first verse. Look at it with me again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It fascinates me that Paul, just like all of his other letters, introduces himself as an apostle. Now, many times when Paul introduced himself as an apostle, it was to sort of establish his credentials. But here we kind of almost have the sense that why would you need to establish your credentials? Why do you need to say you're an apostle? Who do you have to prove it to? You don't have to prove it to Timothy. You almost almost wonder if Paul's not speaking that to himself. Listen, there is an idea that when a man or a woman is specially appointed by God to fulfill some service, that they should have an easy life because of it. 
when really it's just the opposite, isn't it? And here's Paul from prison, and not just from any prison, from death row. And yet he knows in his heart, I'm an apostle. I am a special ambassador of the king of heaven. I have a divine commission to fulfill. God has given me this great purpose. So he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It wasn't because of his own ambition. It wasn't because of popular vote, but because of the will of God. And then he adds this line, which is unique in all of his greetings. He says, according to the promise of life. He gives no other greeting like that in his other letters. But you can see, knowing that his death was near, how precious it was for him to think of that. I am an apostle according to the promise of life. Verse 2. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. It's fascinating, Paul's thinking about his spiritual family. First he speaks of his beloved son, Timothy, but then he speaks of his forefathers in the faith. Verse 3, he says he's thinking of his forefathers who served God with a pure heart. And then he greets him with this idea of grace, mercy, and peace. Paul reminded Timothy that he was on his prayer list. Look at that in verse 3. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Paul made it a regular practice to pray for people. And Timothy was very much on his prayer list. By the way, I love that. What did Paul do? When did Paul pray? Paul only prayed two times a day. Night and day. Other than that, he didn't pray much. No, but I want you to think about how wonderful this is. Paul the Apostle, this man who did such an amazing work for God all over the Roman Empire, now in this prison cell knowing that his, um, his days are very short, his wings are clipped, he can't go to the synagogue and preach, he can't walk the streets and the marketplace and testify of Jesus Christ, he can't sit down with other believers and encourage them. He can't do all those things that he was so used to doing as an apostle. But it's as if he said this, I can do one thing. What can I do? I can pray. And Paul was going to do whatever he could to advance the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, when we sometimes think about the things we can't do, it's an overwhelming list, isn't it? I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I don't have the talents. I don't have the gift. We all can make a great big long list of the things we can't do. But why don't you just find a couple things that you can do and do them? Paul could not do many things that he was used to doing as an apostle. But what he could do was he could pray. And so he said, I am going to pray night and day. But he did it all. If you notice the next phrase there in verse 4. He did it mindful of the tears. Perhaps the tears Paul remembered were the tears that Timothy shed at their last parting. He has that image in his mind. So even though he remembered the tears of Timothy at the same time, verse 4 says that he was filled with joy when he called to remembrance the genuine faith that was in him. When Paul thought about what a strong, vital, genuine believer Timothy was, it made him happy. He was filled with joy at that thought. And then he said, that faith, it didn't begin with you. Notice verse 5. It dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Now Paul's getting nostalgic here, isn't he? He's thinking back to many years before when he met Timothy's family, probably on his first missionary tour. You see, Timothy was from the city of Lystra. And Lystra was a city that Paul visited on his first missionary tour. Now, 
We don't know for sure that Paul met Timothy and his family on the first missionary tour. Because on his second missionary tour, he went back to Lystra. And there it specifically describes him meeting them. But I would suspect, I mean it's not a crazy idea, that Paul actually met them and led them to faith on his first missionary journey and followed up with them on the second one. There was a relatively short period of time between the two missionary tours. So Paul's thinking back very nostalgically to the time when he first met this young man. And he goes, I remember you. You were a young man, so excited about Jesus Messiah. And you had a good grounding. Your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, they poured into you, bringing you up as a good Jewish boy. And we also know from the book of Acts that Timothy's father was a Greek, a Gentile. So he grew up in sort of a mixed home. His mother and his grandmother poured into him as a young man and sort of prepared his heart to trust in Jesus when the gospel came. And can't you just see what a wonderful work it would be among this family? that The mother got saved. The grandmother got saved. And then Timothy himself trusted in Christ. I want to believe that his father also did, but I can't say I know that for sure. But when Paul left Lystra, in his second missionary tour, he took Timothy with him. He said, I see something in this young man. I want him to come along with me and be a part of our group. And that's what it describes in Acts chapter 16. So Paul was absolutely persuaded. He said, I see the faith in your grandmother. I see the faith in your mother. And I see that it's also in you. Now, grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and fathers... They all have something very precious to pass on to future generations, don't they? Isn't it a wonderful thing? May God raise up many more Loises, many more Eunices, many more people like that who will take their responsibility as a grandmother, as a mother, as a grandfather, as a father very seriously and say, I'm going to do whatever I can to pour Jesus Christ into my children, my grandchildren. But I want you to know this that it has to be embraced by those new generations. It's a very important line in verse 5. I am persuaded is in you also. Grandma's faith wasn't going to rescue Timothy. His mother's faith wasn't going to rescue him. Oh, God might use their prayers in a wonderful way, but he had to be persuaded himself. And fortunately, he was, and Paul could see it in him. Now, After that very brief introduction, starting with verse 6, now Paul's going to begin exhorting, encouraging Timothy. Ready? Verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, that's very interesting. Just in the previous verses, verses 4 and 5, he spoke of, The faith that he knew was in Timothy. Timothy, I I know that you burn with a passion. You burn with a true faith in the Lord. I know all that. But Timothy, by the same token, you need to, verse 6, stir up the gift of God which is in you. Timothy was a gifted, valuable man for the kingdom of God, but it seems like he was like a lot of us. God gave him more potential than he was actually living out. And so what did he have to do? He had to stir it up. He he had to sort of stir up the coals. Now we find so many times in these letters of 1 and 2 Timothy that the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to be bold, to stir it up, to be strong. And we've discussed this as we went through 1 Timothy, but it's worth mentioning again. Many people take it from the attitude that Timothy was maybe kind of a coward, maybe something of a weakling. I got to say, the more I've thought about it, and if anybody were to catch my teaching on First and Second Timothy from many years ago, I'd probably teach it from that angle. But the older I get and the more I look at it, I don't think so much of it was that, that Timothy was a man of small courage. In my estimation, Timothy was probably a man of normal courage. But he faced an extraordinary responsibility. And there's quite a difference there, isn't it? A man with normal courage, 
normal backbone, so to speak. When he's faced with an extraordinary responsibility, he senses a great need to be strengthened and encouraged along the way. And let me tell you something. Timothy's responsibility was indeed enormous. There were many Christians in many congregations meeting over an entire region in Ephesus. You get this from Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, and Acts chapter 19, verses 17 through 20. I think it's probably much more likely to think that Timothy was a man of normal courage who had enormous responsibilities and therefore he needed this special encouragement. But he got it from Paul in 1st and 2nd Timothy. There are no less than 25 different places where in some way or another Paul encourages Timothy to be bold, be strong, to step up to his responsibilities. That's why he says, verse 6, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. Timothy, you can't be passive and just let it all happen. You need to be bold and stir up the gift of God which is in you. Now, some people have gifts given to them by God, but those gifts are neglected. And actually, this is a fairly sobering thought, isn't it? I have to be a little bit careful when I speak to you about it because it's an area that could be easily used to bring condemnation and excessive guilt into somebody's life. It's easy for the pastor to sort of lecture the congregation. Now, what are you doing for God? You know, on and on along those lines. That's sort of a, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit too easy because every one of us sense that we could serve God better in greater ways. But I just want to fundamentally ask you this question. If God were to say, stir up the gift that's within you, would, okay, Lord, I think I know what you're talking about. I think I know that there's some ways in which you've gifted me. You've spoken to me. And those aren't being realized as they could, as they should. But this really reminds us of an important principle. God does not work his gifts in and through us as if we were robots. Even when he gives a man or a woman gifts, he leaves an element that needs the cooperation of their will, their desire and drive. If God, and I'll just use it in a way that's analogous to me, and maybe in some sense some of the gifts that I have, Myself as a, as a pastor, a preacher, a Bible teacher, I could have the gift, but I could neglect it. I could neglect God's word. I could neglect diligent study. I could neglect prayer. I, I could neglect those things that go into truly being prepared to preach God's word. It's possible to do that. And could God nevertheless use my efforts in some way? Well, yes, of course he could. But how much more could God use if I said, no, I'm going to stir up the gift that God has given me and regard it as a serious thing? You see, friends, there are some people who are very passively waiting for God to use them. God, just use me anytime you want, but they sort of think that God will just sort of energize them like a robot. And God just says, stir up the gift that's within you. And some people are waiting for some dramatic anointing, a dramatic spiritual experience. Okay, God, give me that new dramatic spiritual experience, and then I'll know you can use me. And God says, I already gave it to you. Stir it up that's within you. Now, I'm not trying to say that there's never a place to seek new gifts, to seek new enablings, to to seek for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to say that, but do you get what I'm saying? There's so much that God has already placed within us. That he might just say, stir up the gift that's within you. And the language that's used here is very much of a fire being stirred up. You know what it's like with a campfire. Sometimes you'll look at a campfire and go, well, that thing's almost out. It's about dead. You, you get the stick or the, the you know, metal poker in there, you stir it up. Whoa, it's back up in flame. And that's very much the idea of stirring up the gift. That which is thought to be dead or dormant can be brought into life. But then notice this which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God used the laying on of hands to communicate spiritual gifts to Timothy. Now please, this is not the only way that God gives such gifts, but it's a way that God gives such gifts. And I wonder, I wonder if you ever had that. Have you ever had somebody 
Just lay hands on you in the name of the Lord and pray that God would give you every spiritual gift that you need. Have you ever had somebody do something that simple? If you haven't, you should. And please, don't think like it has to be like some super spiritually qualified person. We don't need the Apostle Paul to come back and lay hands on us. Because I'll tell you some good news. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit that filled the Apostle Paul fills you. And we can pray for one another in this way. But it's a good thing to do. I remember myself as a young believer gathered together with friends just in the context of a, of a small Bible study, a community group, a life group, that kind of small setting. It's a beautiful setting for that kind of thing to happen. And what we did was we just had the, the time of prayer where you just had the hot seat. You know what the hot seat is, don't you? You just put a chair in the middle of the people and that's the hot seat. And somebody sits down in the hot seat and everybody comes and just lays a hand of love and grace upon that person. And you just pray for them and pray that God would give them every spiritual gift that they would need, that they would be filled with. Yes, there is a place for receiving things from God by the laying on of hands. It's a good thing to ask others to pray for us and that God would give gifts in that way. It's not like some ironclad law. God can give gifts any way he pleases, but we see this is a pattern that appears somewhat frequently in the scriptures. Now, in verse 7, Paul gives Timothy a reason why he can be bold. Timothy, stir up the gifts that are within you. Be bold. Get out there. This is why you can be bold. Look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, Paul saw whatever it was in Timothy, the the largeness of the responsibility, or maybe some timidity within Timothy. Timothy knew the fear that he sometimes felt. And this is what God and Paul wanted Timothy to know. Timothy, when that fear rises up within you, it's not from God. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Now listen, every one of us, we all have situations where we feel timid and afraid. For some people, doing what I'm doing right now, speaking publicly, and other, for some people, this is the most terrifying thing that they can contemplate doing. Which, I mean, obviously, I don't have a great problem with it. Everybody gets nervous at different times, different days from time to time. But, you know, somebody may, may have that fear and they look at me and go, oh, what a courageous. Well, it's not, it's just, that's not my fear. I've got my own fears, thank you very much. We, we all deal with them, don't we? We have the things that we're afraid of. But the first step in dealing with such fears is to understand they're not from God. It's a significant step to say This isn't God making me feel like this. God hasn't given me this. Now, now maybe it's personality. Maybe it's a weakness of the flesh. Perhaps it's some kind of spiritual attack. Perhaps there's something going on physiologically within a person. But it's important to say, God himself isn't giving this. God has not given me the spirit of fear. So if God has not given me the spirit of fear, then what has he given me? I love how he answers this in verse 7 but of power and of love and of a sound mind. All right, if God has not given me the spirit of fear, what has he given us? Well, first of all, he's given us a spirit of power. When we do his work, when we proclaim his word, when we represent his kingdom, we have all his power supporting us. Yes, Lord, when you're at work, there should be a sense of your power. Secondly, he's given us a spirit of love. That tells us a lot about the power that he gives us. Now listen, everybody wants love. Excuse me, everybody wants power, I should say. Power, yes, that's right, I want the power. But do you really want power that will be expressed in biblical love? You know, the greatest example I can think of that from the pages of the New Testament is in the life of Jesus when on the night he would be betrayed, when he met with his disciples in what we call the Last Supper, when he got together with them and he went to wash their feet. Do you remember what it says in the Gospel of John chapter 13? 
It says this, that Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, that Jesus, knowing that all authority had been granted to him in heaven and earth, which is like awesome. I mean, knowing all authority has been granted to you in heaven and earth, I mean, you, you just want to go out and like set some things right. You, know, you want to, you know, tell the Roman governor off. You want to tell those religious leaders off. I've got all authority in heaven and earth. What does it say that Jesus did understanding that he had all this authority? It says that he set aside his outer garment. He girded himself with a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. Jesus said, I have all power on heaven and earth and I'm going to express it in sacrificial love to people. That's something that for the most part the world doesn't understand. And it never will. But that is the love of God in action. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power and of love. And what's the third one? Of sound mind. The ancient Greek word here has the idea of a calm, self-controlled mind in contrast to the panic and confusion that comes in a fearful situation. Power, love, a sound mind. Now there's something I think is important for us to understand about this. Is that God, I believe, has that promise for every person But each one of us, because of who we are biologically, because of who we are by our experience, because of who we are in the environment that we've lived in, we may come at that from a completely different place. You know, if somebody is very anxious and fretful and and, and panicked almost in mind by nature, then for them to receive the gift of God's sound mind might look different than it does in a person who's just pretty calm, cool, and collected all the time anyway. And God doesn't use these things to erase our personality. He's not trying to make us uh, automatons, all just exactly like one another. But what you can do is you can say, Lord, I believe that the transforming power of Jesus Christ should be real in my life. Lord, I need more of your love. I need more of your power. I need more of your sound mind. Would you fill me with that? I think about that when it comes to people who struggle with some forms of mental illness. What a difficult thing that is. How much compassion and sympathy people like that really deserve and should have among the people of God. And these aren't things that you can just quote a verse at. But they are things that you can say, I believe that God working in and through this wants to bring this help to me. And listen, where that person has helped, it might look different from another person who just has a different nature and character altogether. But they should be able to rest that the love and the grace of Jesus is going to come to them to bring power and love and a sound mind. I just love those words. He's not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind. Now, what's he supposed to use that power and love and sound mind for? Look at it here in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Okay, Timothy, I've just told you about the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Now what are you supposed to do with it? Well, one thing you're supposed to do with it is stand beside me. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. First, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. I believe it is so hard for us 2,000 years removed from the first century, to really understand how embarrassing the culture thought it was to follow a crucified Savior. In the Jewish mind, the one who was crucified, hanged on a tree, was the object of God's special curse. 
and Christians are supposed to say, that's my Messiah and Lord. In the Roman mind, crucifixion was a torture fit only for slaves. Only the worst criminals of the most degraded classes. And you say, I'm going to follow a crucified Savior? There's a graffiti. When I think about it, I I can't tell you. It's trying to remember, recall in my mind if it was on the walls of Pompeii or Rome, but I can't tell you. It was on the walls of an ancient city. And in a crude drawing, but by the way, just as an aside, one of the ways we know that ancient Rome and the Roman Empire that people were much more literate than we give them credit for is the widespread existence of graffiti. If people couldn't read at all, why would there be so much graffiti written on the walls? In any regard. There's a graffiti with a crude drawing of a crucified man. You can see the arms out. You can see the legs down. You can see a rough little cross behind him. And it looks like the image of a crucified man except for one thing. The head is of a donkey. And it says, I I forget the name exactly, something like, Alexemnos worships his God. Do you get the mockery behind that? Ha ha. You worship a crucified God. What could be crazier than that? That's why it's a big deal for Paul to write here in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. No, he was crucified, but he's the Lord of all. And actually, what in the eyes of the world was his greatest humiliation is the pathway to our great glory and unity with him. Nor, he says in verse 8, I love this, nor of me his prisoner. You know, if Jesus looked, all right, I'll say these words. Grant me a little grace here, please. If Jesus looked like all the world like a loser on the cross, because who's a bigger loser than a guy being crucified? Then didn't Paul look an awful lot like a loser sitting in a Roman jail waiting for his execution? Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me. But I love how he phrases this. Here you get a little window into the soul of Paul that should cheer us most. Look at it right here. Nor of me, his prisoner. Whose prisoner? If you were to go interview the Apostle Paul, oh, Paul, whose prisoner are you? The prisoner of Rome? He goes, no, I'm not the prisoner of Rome. I'm the prisoner of Jesus. Wherever I am, I belong to Jesus. If I'm in jail, I belong to Jesus in jail. I am here. I am Jesus's all the way. But he says, but share with me in these sufferings and do it all according to the power of God. Look at what he says here. He says, but share with me in these sufferings. It's the same way that Paul spoke of it in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You you see, do that. Identify with me. This is what Christian love is about. And Paul actually suffered according to the power of God. Think about that phrase. It's a very strange phrase. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me his prisoner, reading verse 8 again, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul said, I am suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Say, what? If the power of God were to be manifest there, wouldn't it be getting Paul out of prison? Nobody says no. That's not always how it works. You see, in that prison cell, I'm sure it seemed like the power of Rome was more real than the power of God. But not to Paul. Listen, the empire of Rome is gone. Christianity is alive and well on planet Earth. It's thriving. The power Paul knew, even in that prison cell, was greater than even the power of Rome. 
Continuing on now, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When you study the writings of the Apostle Paul, you'll become familiar with these little sections. Sometimes they last just a verse or two. Sometimes they're extended for several verses. But you'll become aware of these, ex- these um, sections where the Apostle Paul just kind of forgets himself and gets on a roll. I mean, what's he talking about? In the con- He's talking about him being in prison, Timothy not being ashamed. But when he's talking about the power of God, even in the midst of a prison, he gets on a little bit of a roll here. And look at how he explains it. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. I mean, he starts preaching to Timothy here. He saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Isn't that a wonderful thought, people? That God has a purpose in calling you. And he's called us according to his own purpose. He has a plan. And he's included us in that plan. Now I know there's some people who get upset by this. They say, well listen, if God has a plan, then uh, you know, why, why doesn't it include everybody? Uh, why doesn't it include me? Am I out of God's plan? What, do, do you want to be in God's plan? Yeah, I do. Okay, fine. Then you can come on in God's plan. Well, but how do I know if he wanted me in that plan to begin with? He wants you in. Come on in. But if somebody were to say, well, no, I don't want to be a part of God's plan, then why are you sore that he didn't include you in it? If you want to be in his plan, come on in. If you don't want to be in his plan, why should it upset you that you're not there? No, it's a beautiful, powerful statement who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, verse 9, but according to his own purpose. This is why God called us. It wasn't because of anything great we are or were or would become, but because it fit in with his wonderful purpose. And he gave us, look at this in verse 9, grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus Before time began. Did your head just explode a little bit? In some way, Paul's explaining this. I can explain the words. I don't know if I can drill down and explain the thought. But the words go something like this. God has an eternal purpose and plan. And those that he's called, though they're going to be part of that plan... He has showed them his grace before time began. Now, first of all, do you mean that time had a beginning? Yes. When was that beginning? I don't know. It was before I ever came on this earth. God has a Ability to stand not only outside of creation, but outside of time itself. Time itself is a property that he has created and implemented in the world. And apparently there was a time before time even began. And just like a couple lovingly plans for a baby before the baby is born... So God made plans for us. Now, something of this, look at verse 10, has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The the appearing of Jesus revealed the purpose and the grace of God. He fulfilled the eternal plan of God. Jesus shows us what this eternal plan is all about. And as part of that plan, look at it right here in verse 10, He abolished death. Isn't that beautiful? Now, it's wonderful for us to think about it this time of year with this coming Sunday being Easter Sunday and Jesus abolishing death. 
taking all of its sting, all of its terror away. We're very cheered by that thought. It's a wonderful thing. But please notice this. Jesus took the idea of death and he transformed it completely. Death does not take anything away from the Christian. It is simply their graduation into glory. That's why in regard to believers, death is even called, did you see it there in verse 10? It says, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, here's the idea. It even is beginning to, it comes to the place where Jesus himself reveals life and immortality. Because of the appearing of Jesus, we know more about life and immortality than ever before. Now, when you study the Old Testament, you find that the understanding of the afterlife is murky in the Old Testament. It's unclear, it's cloudy. Something like this, sometimes you'll find David, the psalmist, saying, can I praise you when I'm dead? And, and like, maybe not. Now, other times you'll find triumphant statements. Like Job will stand up and say, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall stand with him on that day before he collapses in despair again. So in the Old Testament, you have it, there's an unclear, there's a murky understanding about the afterlife. This shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because what does verse 10 say? Jesus Christ brought life and immortality to light. Do you want to know about life and immortality? Look to the New Testament. Look to what Jesus said. And Jesus teaches us more about life and immortality than anybody else. Jesus and the revelation of the New Testament brings this true to us. And he does it all through the gospel, verse 10, through the good news of Jesus Christ. And I love how he has this beautiful chain that goes. First of all, it it began before time began. It continues with the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It came to us when he saved us and called us. It continues as we live our holy calling. And then finally, it'll show itself in immortality that is eternal life. This was the message that Paul preached. This was the message he was in prison for. And Paul would say it's worth it. I want to remind you that a man like the Apostle Paul could have escaped death and prison if he would have just renounced Jesus Christ. If he would have just said, it's all a lie, I've been deceived, I've been deceiving, but he wouldn't do it. This was how firm his grasp upon this truth of God was. Now let's finish up with the last couple verses. We're not going to make it through the whole chapter here this evening. Verses 11 and 12, and the next time we're together, we'll pick it up in verse 13. He says, Verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Second Timothy is such a beautiful and powerful letter because sometimes in the letter, we sense sadness in Paul. There hasn't been too much of it in the first 12 verses that we've looked at here. But you just wait till we get to the final chapter. There's some real heart-tugging sadness in the Apostle Paul. But yet, there's also these, these places in the letter where it seems like Paul gains strength and excitement. He thinks about the great message of God that he just described in the previous verses. And now he says, this is the thing to which I was appointed a preacher. Listen, I preached a lot of sermons. I founded a lot of churches as an apostle. And I brought many nations to Jesus Christ as a teacher of the Gentiles. God has used me. And even though I'm here in this prison cell, even though my head is going to be on the chopping block, because that's how Paul died. He was beheaded. He knew that's how he would die. They wouldn't crucify him. He was a Roman citizen. And they would never crucify a Roman citizen. 
He knew he would die by beheading. He goes, I know I'm destined for that. It could be in the next few hours or days. Can you imagine the tension that would fill Paul's heart and mind every time he heard the jailer walking down the aisle? Is now the time? Is today the day? Because no, but I've served God well. I've preached. I've founded churches. I've preached the gospel among the nations. And he recognized, verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. I preach a wonderful message, but it's cost me dearly. And why was it worth it? Friends, if you remember nothing else from these first 12 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at this phrase in verse 12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. Now, I believe it's very important for Christians to know what we believe. And probably more than ever, it's so important. What do we believe, folks? What do we believe? Do we believe the truth? Do we have a belief? But I'm going to tell you something. As much as I believe in knowing what you believe, have I stressed that enough? It's important to know what you believe. But let me tell you something that's even more important to knowing what you believe. It's knowing in whom you believe. And that's what Paul says. Look at that phrase again from verse 12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. This explains why Paul was so bold in his work. This explains why Paul endured to the end because he said, I know Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is near to me in this prison cell. Jesus Christ has affirmed my work. I'm in a prison cell, forgotten by most, written off by many, considered a loser by still many more. I know that, but I know whom I have believed. And the preciousness of his very real relationship with Jesus Christ surpassed any of that. Charles Spurgeon said this. Know thyself said the heathen philosopher, that is well, but that knowledge may only lead a man to hell. No Christ, says the Christian philosopher, know him and you shall know yourself and this shall certainly lead you to heaven for the knowledge of Christ Jesus is saving knowledge. Isn't that wonderful? I know whom I have believed and, verse 12, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him. This is a second reason that explains Paul's boldness. Paul gave Jesus his life and Jesus was fully able to keep it. Paul, wait a minute, Paul. Hello, Paul. Don't you you're about to lose your life? You're going to lose your life in a few days. I said, I can't lose my life. My life is in Jesus Christ. It's never going to be lost. No, they're going to put your head on a chopping block and they're going to use a sword or something and they're going to be heads. You're going to lose your life. My life's not lost. It's hidden Jesus Christ. This is the same thought. This is the same philosophy that cries out and says, listen, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What are you going to do to a man like this? Nothing. Because he knows whom he has believed. And he'll do it. Look at how it closes there in verse 12. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now what is that day? Well, he would say, well, it's the day of Jesus. Maybe it's the day when Jesus comes for us I don't know about you, but I'm in the come quickly Lord Jesus club. It cannot happen too soon for me. Maybe it's the day Jesus comes for us, or maybe it's the day we go to him. But either one of it's going to be that day. That day. Now, you know that the Bible uses a lot of imagery to speak about our relationship with Jesus. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And everybody understands, you know, it doesn't mean that you're a literal lump of clay. It's an analogy. Well, another analogy it uses is that we are the bride and he's the bridegroom. It's an analogy. It's a wonderful, powerful analogy and it's a beautiful one. Well, listen, um, you ask any bride, what is the day? 
and they know what the day is. You don't have to explain it to them. And so, uh, how, uh, you, you getting ready for the day? You ask, well, they're going to, yeah, it's not like, well, what day do you mean? They're not going to say that. Listen, there's a sense in which it has all that power and even more for us as believers. We don't have a date to circle on a calendar. And if anybody tells you there is, they're wrong. Please stop setting dates. I always have this thought that if somebody were just by luck, uh, by chance, to accidentally choose the right date for when Jesus was going to return, then Jesus would say, well, now I'm not going to return on that day because, you know, and you, you could be delaying it for us. So stop, please. Just stop with the dates. So we don't know the date, but you better believe it's circled on God's calendar. And he is able to commit it all until that day. I'll commit it to him And that's the day it's going to be all fulfilled. Isn't that beautiful? Now you and I, uh, in a warm Santa Barbara evening, comfortable place with lighting and all the rest, we can say that and it cherishes our heart. I can't get away from thinking where this was written from. Father, help us. Help us to commit everything unto you until that day. Father, um, We need this same heart, Lord. In the present moment, you haven't called us to suffer the same way that Paul did. And Lord, it's likely that nobody in this room is going to die the death of a martyr. But Lord, we pray that you would so fill us with your spirit and with your contentment and with your goodness that we would be determined to live lives as martyrs. Thank you, Lord. And just collectively, Lord, we together, we say, we know in whom we have believed and we're so happy to commit it all unto you until that day. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.